You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 13. This lecture will attempt to go a little more deeply into the material at the end of section 4 within chapter 2 of Veritatis Splendor. Section 4, in general, is dedicated to teleology, to end-directedness, to a consideration of consequences, because of the sophisticated teaching the Church has in this matter. As I was noticing in the last lecture, it is important to consider consequences. The danger is in erroneous theories which tend to consider only consequences. So what I'd like to emphasize in this particular lecture first would be some of the positions that are taken by those who hold this erroneous view, trying to understand at least why they do so, and then to consider some of the ways in which Catholic moral theology has tended to handle this matter, but differently. There is the famous principle of double effect, and so I will speak a bit about that in order to use it as an example and to go deeper here, as well as to try to appreciate the the proper role of casuistry, which is something the Church has much encouraged that we consider this sort of thing, and then try to again go back to the text of Veritatis Splendor. So let's begin with a, a consideration of those who take the position of proportionalism and consequentialism. Those are the names of the two prominent approaches to this particular perspective that John Paul II is worried about. If we are to use, for instance, the little um, uh, device that we've used throughout chapter 2, there's a good cholesterol approach and a bad cholesterol approach. The good cholesterol approach to the consideration of consequences and indirectedness is the one that he champions when saying, our moral analysis of any particular deliberate action, our moral analysis must constantly be asking the question, can this type of action truly be put in the service of human dignity, does it respect the nature of persons? And then, what is the purpose of human dignity anyway? Well, it's to allow us as free and rational creatures to gain our final goal, and our final goal is union with God. Can this particular action be placed in the service of dignity and the service of God? If so, then it will pass the test with regard to whether this type of action is allowable. It will still need to pass the test of whether my own intention is good enough and have I sized up the situation rightly so that I'm appreciating the circumstances and appropriately counting the consequences. Hence, in a good cholesterol situation, the person who is attempting a moral evaluation will do all three of those, but will have a properly understood consideration of the most important consequences very deeply in mind. Does this particular action really respect the dignity of the person? Does it lean some way that it can be put at the service, the honor and worship of God? If it doesn't do that, it is going to be something that is intrinsically wrong. But even if it satisfies that test, we must still ask, why am I doing it? Just for example, I could be volunteering to do some great work and the work would be truly helpful, serving the poorest of the poor. But if my intention were simply to gain a great reputation for serving the poor, I would, in a way, violate the very wonderful kind of work that I'm doing by having the wrong motive. 
Or, let's supposing I have the right motive, simply love of the poor, and I'm doing important volunteer service, really assisting the poorest of the poor, that is, the type of thing I'm doing would normally do it, but let's supposing the ones whom I'm actually serving actually need to be challenged a bit more and not given things, and that by simply giving people things, something that by itself is a wonderful and beautiful activity, but if I'm not helping them really to grow and to learn how to get and hold a job, to take care of themselves, if I'm simply keeping them in their poverty, the circumstances, the consequences, might not turn out so good. All I mean by that relatively simplistic example is the need to consider all of these particular factors, the intention of the agent, the nature of the action that gives it its moral species, as well as the circumstances including the consequences, because any one of these things could interrupt the moral goodness of what I otherwise intend. So, good cholesterol sense, there is a consequence, there is a far-reaching consequence that I'm looking at. But the bad cholesterol sense of teleology is to say, I really don't need to consider the intention, I really don't need to consider the nature of the action, the only thing that I should consider are the foreseeable consequences, and in some way or other to make that my purpose of moral evaluation. Why would someone want to do that? What is it that the proponents of proportionalism and, and or consequentialism are intending? Generally, the background here is not just straightforward utilitarianism, although there is some of that, but there is also, I think, a connection to a phenomenon that we were discussing earlier in Chapter 2. There is a tremendous fascination with freedom and with autonomy. In fact, the entire first section of chapter 2 was given to that discussion about the good cholesterol sense of autonomy and the bad cholesterol sense of autonomy. Some people, some proponents of moral theory, like to emphasize the need for autonomous morality in the sense that I give the law to myself. I don't find the law anywhere outside of me, in God, in nature, in anything even like peer pressure. The only thing, for their point of view, the only thing that makes morality worth the salt is that I give the law to myself. As such, it is a purely rational sort of morality. And in the judgment of Pope John Paul II, there is an attractiveness to that. As you can see why many a theorist would want to champion a purely rationalist theory of morality. But in doing so, they give false solutions because, in his judgment, the solutions they come will give inadequate consideration to the type of action I'm doing, will give inadequate consideration to whether it really does respect the truth of the person and the dignity of that person, and whether it really considers honoring the will of God in terms of what God has let us know about the truth of persons and how they ought to be respected. That focus on consequences or that focus on intention tends to be the source and the reason for even these utilitarian positions. Again, let me try to make myself clear as I can on that. When I urged throughout these lecture series, throughout these lectures, when I have urged that the type of ethics we have depends upon the vision of the human person and ultimately depends upon the vision of being, the metaphysics that we hold, I think that's true not only of biblical morality and of Christian morality as we've been trying to describe it here, I think it's true of Kantianism and its duty-based perspective. I think it's true of utilitarianism 
and its perspective that focuses in on consequences only. But notice in doing so, none of them really satisfies even the demands of a natural law theory unless they attend in very appropriate ways to the three things that need to be involved in a natural law theory, a theological pole, an anthropological pole, and an epistemological pole. That is, in genuine natural law theory, we see God as the author of our nature and hence the source of moral obligation. We see our own nature as the place where we find the intention of God written and available for us to observe. And we find our minds capable of laying down and articulating those norms on the basis of what we see. In these autonomous moralities, the rationalistic moralities, and I would include both the Kantian deontology and the utilitarian consequence-based system, neither one is willing to see God as the real source of obligation or as the real goal of our activity. They don't do that. In the case of Kantianism, there would even be a denial that we can get to human nature. That is, it's of the phenomenal order, and at best I can understand this by a kind of a practical hypothesis or a, a practical approximation. And where Kantian morality truly resides is in the third pole, the epistemological one. But instead of thinking about speculative reason, that is, reason trying to know the truth about the nature of the human being, for Kant, it is always practical reason which has the decisive vote. I must lay down a maxim for myself which I can universalize. The whole goal of an autonomous, rationalistic morality is I must impose this on myself. And so the only factor that they are really considering is the epistemological one, and then I think, relatively significantly, distorting the quality of that epistemological focus by making it as though practical reason decides on what the norms are. The utilitarian approach, which is more to the point of this particular chapter, in a way is doing something similar. They're not focusing on God in any way as the source of moral obligation or as the real end and goal of the whole project, nor are they particularly considering human nature as we have wanted to consider it, but they are considering nature to an extent. That is, they think of the human being as the kind of being who has pleasures and pains, who has benefits and burdens. And they think of the third pole, the reason, as a calculative instrument for assessing the relative utility of any particular course of action in contributing to the lightening of a burden, to the increasing of the benefit, to somehow maximizing the utility and promoting the greater happiness conceived according to however calculated, a, however complicated a calculus they have devised. In doing so, I think that they are emphasizing this rationalist and relatively autonomous morality. While they would like to claim that there is some objectivity in their calculus, by, especially by the sophistication, what kind of pleasure, what kind of pain, what kind of benefit, what kind of burden, how long-lasting, how intense, while they would like to try to quantify that, in fact, they are still dealing with subjective appreciation. How much value do I put on it? And that, I think, is the ultimate definition of a rationalism, imposing the structures of my mind on reality. I think it's true of rationalism in modern, early modern European philosophy. I think it's true of rationalism 
in ancient Greek philosophy where there was rationalism. I think it's true quite generally. Rationalism is the attempt to have my mind impose its categories on reality. And I fear very much that that is very much a part of what it is that this utilitarian approach does. But why might it be so attractive? In paragraph 75 and 76 of Veritatis Splendor, Pope John Paul II speculates that perhaps part of what the attractiveness of this approach is, is that it, the utilitarian calculus, with all of its sophistication about how you put a number or some kind of quantity assigned to any particular benefit or any particular burden, it seems to very much to ape the calculations of very good science and very good technology. As we all know from our study of science and technology, with the rise of the scientific revolution in the 17th century, part of the reason for the enormous success of contemporary Western science was the way in which it quantified everything. Its resort to the mathematization of the universe and the attempt to find quantities which could be formulated and then could be manipulated by mathematical um, algorithms. This is precisely the strength of contemporary science, proposing various hypotheses and testing them in a way that tends to remove the qualitative and as much as possible remove the subjective dimensions. I think that what the utilitarian approach found in theological consequentialism and theological proportionalism tends to do is to imitate that approach by attempting to assign relative quantities. But in fact, there is a fundamental mistake there, the impossibility of ever really calculating all those who would be affected even by a single action, let alone the consequences upon all those who would be affected by an action as a rule, if done in the form of rule utilitarianism. There's the impossibility of doing that, and the fact that the numbers assigned, the quantities assigned, are still relatively subjective proportions. I'm always amused, of course, by student evaluations at the end of a course. We have a regular system of them at my university. And because they're all in numerical, quantitative form, they give the impression of being highly scientific. But what are they? Well, they're really measures of a person's subjective appreciation. Now, I think that there's some value in student evaluations. Usually, the value resides, however, when some set of numbers are way off. If you know what the mean is for the teachers in a given department, or the mean is for a given set of courses on the same, a given set of classes on the same subject, somebody who's way off low or way off high, I suspect that you've got some really valuable information there because you've transcended mere subjectivity. But the fine, minute gradations between a 5.7 and a 5.8 are really not statistically particularly appropriate or significant, and especially all they're measuring is, of course, a subjective reaction anyway. What one really wants, I think, are the qualitative evaluations, and I find much more significant than the numbers, except in those really far extreme ranges. What I find are the interesting comments that a person made, because in the work of education, what one is really concerned with is, is the person who is in the class thinking? Is the person coming to understand? Is the person coming to be challenged by some of the ideas presented and learning how, the learning how those ideas 
have produced a challenge and how the person has responded to the challenge. I confess I get much more out of the written remarks, especially when the student is thoughtful enough to engage in those kind of questions about that aspect of education. My point, however, here is not to talk about student evaluations. My point is to talk about the intrinsically subjective character of what it is to which utilitarian is often, often trying to assign certain quantitative values. What the Pope is saying is, is that that's some of the attraction. It seems to be more scientific. It seems to be more technical. In fact, the appropriate moral analysis, as we have been saying, is an analysis that deals with the person and the act, namely the person as an intrinsic subject of dignity who is, by good cholesterol approach to teleology, oriented to praise, reverence, and service of God our Lord. Can any particular action be used to support that? Then there is at least a potential goodness for it. On the other hand, if there is a way in which, if we can come to say that there's no way in which a particular kind of action can really support the dignity of the person or the end to which the person is directed, there is a reason to say that there is something intrinsically wrong. Now, traditional moral theology within Catholicism often has to deal with problematic situations. I've been trying to take it at the high-minded and general way here, but let me now deal with the question of more specific situations. Often the particular choices that we make have more than one particular immediate end, whatever their final end with regard to union with God. We're presuming that that has been satisfied, and we're presuming that we've got the dignity of the person respected. A particular action can have more than one result. Some of the results will be desirable. Some of the results may be undesirable, and we can foresee that. And so what the church has steadily maintained over the centuries is what is called the principle of double effect, and that too is a subject of John Paul II's Very Tough to Splendor, Chapter 2, Section 4. In the traditional teaching of the principle of double effect, which John Paul II supports, here's how it goes. When we are attempting the moral analysis of a human act whose consequences we can foresee to be plural, some desirable, some undesirable for various reasons, we must assure ourselves of four conditions before we proceed. First, we must always examine the actual action taken to make sure that it is something by itself which is not intrinsically evil. So the first test is a negative one. We may never do an intrinsically evil act, no matter what consequences come, no matter what our intention. We'll deal with that more in the next lecture. Secondly, we must examine the particular good effect and evil effect that we can foresee. We must, second condition, in no way ever desire the evil effect for itself. Third, we must not choose the evil effect as a means to the good effect because that would still be choosing evil. Finally, if we've satisfied ourselves that the action we ourselves are taking is not intrinsically evil, if we don't in any way intend the evil effect, if we're not choosing the evil effect as a means to the good effect, but it's only truly a byproduct, then we may ask the question of proportionality. Is there a relative proportionality between the evil effect that we can foresee and the good effect for which we are truly hoping? Let me just run through that with an easy example. I'm sure you can think of lots of other more complicated examples. I'm going to take the 
case of a firefighter. A firefighter who has got good equipment, a firefighter who's well-trained, a firefighter who's on a staff, and they will respond to fires. And this particular staff, as they're responding, they're technical, they're professional, they're really well-organized. In the course of pondering that, notice firemen will have to enter burning buildings. Now, by itself, that's a dangerous situation. And so when we're considering the situation or the circumstances, entering a burning building is a dangerous thing. But firemen are trained to enter burning buildings, and they do so with care, and they know in general what they're doing, and they've had lots of hours of practice. So entering a burning building for me would be something that I shouldn't do because I don't know my way around a burning building. I'm going to get overwhelmed by the smoke. I'm going to be subject to kinds of danger which I oughtn't to myself consider because I'm not trained and I don't have the equipment. They can enter into that because it's not an intrinsic evil. They've got a way to protect themselves against anything that they can reasonably anticipate, and they've got the equipment and they've got the training, they can do it. What is the possible evil effect? Well, they could die. They could be injured. We have to foresee that. But what is the good effect that they're intending? The rescue of some person, group of people who are in the burning building. So in considering what they're doing, they know that there's a possible evil effect. They could be injured, they could die, but it truly would be a byproduct of the action that they're undertaking, entering the burning building with the whole of the focus on their entering the burning building being directed to saving someone who can't get out. The good effect is there, the evil effect is there, but it won't be by being injured that they save the person whom they are attempting to save. If they get burned along the way, if they should even die along the way. To die along the way would mean that they wouldn't be able to achieve it. So it's not the means to the end. It passes rule number three. And it's not desired in and of itself. They'd rather come out healthy. They'd rather come out unscathed. The fourth consideration. Well, a fireman entering into a burning building, not intending to get burned, not intending to get to die, but rather intending to save someone, there's a relative proportion, a life for a life. And they know part of the risk they undertake is the risk to their own life as public servants because it's for the sake of other people. But now let me complicate the situation a little bit. Supposing in that same scenario, supposing we really had a fireman who had a suicidal wish, then entering into the burning building would be hoping, in fact, to experience the evil effect. That's not acceptable. If we've got somebody who's suicidal, they shouldn't be in those situations. It doesn't pass test number two. How about if it were the case of the person isn't suicidal, but maybe there are enormous family debts and the person has taken out a big insurance policy if he should get injured or die in his line of work. He doesn't really want to die. He doesn't want to be severely injured, but he knows that if he plays it right by entering the Bernie building for ostensibly good purposes, truly saving somebody, and managing to get out, or perhaps managing to die, it's the evil effect which is producing the good effect desired, and the good effect desired is the lump sum payment from the insurance company. He does this, in fact, by getting injured. We would regard that as unacceptable by the principle of double effect. Finally, let me take a case where we've got a fireman entering a burning building, not intending to get burned, not going to use being burned as a means to the good effect. All of those are clear. 
But the fireman is not entering to save a person. The fireman is entering a really raging inferno to save a stamp collection. Well, we would say, no, you can't do that, right? It's, it's not proportional, a life for a stamp collection. My point is simply to take a relatively easy example. I'm sure you can complicate the situation with lots of cases. I'm not going to try to do that here, lest I get distracted from my general point. Rather, what I've tried to review for you, and what I'd encourage you to review on your own, are the principles involved in double-effect reasoning. Because what they show is the Church's steady compliance with the very things that John Paul II has been discussing. Namely, when we are evaluating a moral, uh, when we are doing a moral evaluation of a human act, what we have to ask is, first of all, the question, is the act being undertaken by itself an intrinsic evil? In the next lecture, I'll go through some of the list of those things, but we could take a nice example, an easy example. How about the example of torture? If we've got a true case of torture, most of us find that absolutely morally repugnant. Or how about the case of forced enslavement? Perhaps one can sell oneself into a certain service. One usually does this when one has to work for a living. And the job that one has requires you to be at the job and doing various things that you'd rather not do. That's what office work or that's what a particular laborer's work is. Admittedly, we can sell our labor, but we can't sell ourselves into slavery. We can't be sold into slavery. We regard that as an intrinsic evil. So the first thing that one must do is to ask, is the action that I'm undertaking intrinsically evil? No. It has to somehow be organized in such a way that it can support the dignity of the person and serve the purpose of a human being's life, namely seeking to give honor, praise, and worship of God and to be united with God for eternity. Presuming that we've got the first condition satisfied, the next two conditions, which are related, if I can foresee an evil effect, is it truly a byproduct or is it itself the cause? If I in any way want the evil effect, the action now is not permissible because the intentionality is wrong. It's an appeal to that consideration of the Phoenix operantis. What is the quality of the intention? what it is that I really want. And even if the action by itself could be organized in such a way as to support human dignity, do I want it for the wrong reason? And we would regard it not as a moral act and perhaps even one that's gravely immoral. Third, we ask, do I want the evil effect as a means to the good effect? There you have the strategy that is usually used by the utilitarians, doing things that many of us in a more traditional stance would regard as unacceptable because the evil effect is a means to the good effect. Both from the point of view of moral philosophy, we should never choose evil that good may come. Likewise, from the point of view of scripture, we have a quotation from St. Paul, good should not be, evil should not be done that good may come. And this is given very, very high priority within the catechism and within traditional moral theology. Finally, we take into consideration that fourth point, the relative proportionality of the evil effect and the good effect. And there is the place where proportionality may be considered. What the problem with proportionalism is that Pope John Paul II identifies is that it cuts immediately and only 
to that fourth condition of the principle of double effect. And it makes that the sole principle of morality for deciding these issues of complexity and doubt. It is, in a way, an approach to morality which does a bad job by being forgetful of the other factors of morality, the other factors that are required for a proper moral analysis. At this point, let me turn briefly, as I promised at the beginning, to the topic of casuistry. Casuistry is the name for a certain approach or style of doing moral philosophy or doing moral theology. If you happen to know the way in which law is taught, law is almost always taught in a casuistic fashion. That is, law is taught in case books. And what you do in a many a law school course is to look at the cases and the way judges have decided them, trying to pull out of a case the relevant principle of law which allows the case to be settled. This is how lawyers are trained to think, and it's a, it's a fascinating thing to watch, how the use of casuistry can be done for great good. Likewise in moral theology. It was often the case in the teaching of moral theology in seminaries and sometimes in universities that the theology in a way would resemble the law school education by looking at cases and trying to pull out the appropriate moral principles. This can be done with great effect. This can be done in wonderful ways, so I'm not imposed to it in principle. But what John Paul II is doing in Veritatis Splendor is noticing that there are some problems with this approach. In particular, the problem is, is that one can lose sight of the other principles that come from revelation and that come from good reasoning. That in a, an approach to the teaching of moral theology that is purely casuistic, there can very easily be a tendency to lose sight of some of these more far-reaching and fundamental principles and a consideration only of consequences. How does the thing turn out? I think we are all prone to that when we start analyzing lots of cases. It's part of the fun of discussion in moral matters in that we're looking for how a case will turn out. The attractiveness of casuistry was that it tries to give solutions ahead of time to the various scenarios, problems, dilemmas. But just as in law, so too in moral theology, I would very much urge this. Hard cases make bad law. Any lawyer trained in a good law school will realize you don't do the hard cases first. Because if you do the hard cases first, what you get are such complexly stated principles that they aren't useful for the vast majority of cases. You've got something jury-rigged to solve an enormously complex problem. So too in moral theology. You don't start with the hard cases. Rather, you start with approach to the nature of the act, looking at the fullness of intentionality, eventually bringing to bear circumstances and consequences, but in an ordered fashion. Then you have a much more reasonable moral analysis of an act that respects both the principles that come from revelation and the principles that come from sound thinking. And you can avoid the dangers of casuistry although resorting to it and its fascinating attention to cases when needed. We'll have an, as our goal for the next lecture to focus a little bit more intensely on that one topic that we haven't adequately covered yet, intrinsic evils. That's in the last part of section four of chapter two, and we'll make that the main focus of our next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.